0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. We are going to be returning uh, this winter, starting today. Uh, we're going to be returning to the book of Luke, and we're going to finish Luke starting today and going all the way up through Easter. Um, and so we've been... Uh, the general pattern for preaching is that in the fall, we do the Old Testament, and uh, we're in the book of 1 Samuel in the fall. In the winter time, up until Easter, we've been doing the Gospels. And so we're in Luke, and uh, so we're going to finish Luke. We're going to be doing Luke 20 to 24 over the next, uh, the next few months. So I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 20, the first 20 verses. So give ear. This is God's word. One day, <clears throat> as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will ask you a question tell me john's baptism was it from heaven or from men they discussed it among themselves and said well if if we say from heaven he'll ask why didn't you believe him but if we say from men all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that john was a prophet so they answered we don't know where it was from and jesus said neither will i tell you by what authority i am doing these things He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it out to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is God's word. So the question that's asked, that's really at the foundation of this passage is, who the heck do you think you are? Right? Who do you think you are? That's the question that these people are coming to with Jesus. And frankly, it's a question that people are continuing to ask today, right? Religious conversations have changed dramatically, if you haven't noticed. It used to be that there was a time when people would ask questions about, hey, how can you really believe in the bodily resurrection, what's the evidence for that? Or can you really, what's the evidence for the virgin birth or the miracles of Jesus or for saying the Bible's inspired? People don't really care about that much anymore, right? People don't ask those kinds of questions. Instead, usually when somebody comes to them with a religious claim, well, usually it's one of two things that happen. If you have a religious discussion with somebody, sometimes um, both, both people in that discussion simply just share their views and say, well, this is what I believe, this is what works for me. You know, and, and this is what I think makes sense, and then the other person says the same, and then they, co- they sort of leave unchanged but more informed. But when one of those two people says something and acts as though what they say is right and the other person is wrong, well, well then, then you have this question that comes out. Hold on. Who do you think you are? Right? It's one thing if you want to say, well, this works for you, but who are you to tell me what's right for me? By what authority do you make this claim that you're right and I'm wrong, right? Who do you think you are? This is the question that comes out over and over and over again. And frankly, it's a good question. It's a question that should be asked, and it should be answered with love and grace, with understanding, without arrogance at all. And so this, but what's interesting is that as we look at this question that's asked to Jesus, this whole passage sort of unfolds from that question, the leaders, the religious leaders asked Jesus the question, who do you think you are? And frankly, the question continues to be asked, both to Jesus and then I think to us who claim to say, to, to say we follow Jesus even today. And so we're going to see three things that come out of this question today. We're going to see, first, this question gets to our hearts. Second, this question produces conflict. And then third, this pr- this question produces community. Okay, so those are our three points Today, first, this question gets to our hearts. Now we have to realize that Jesus has just cleared out the temple. Okay, we saw this in the series. You can can get the sermons online. um, That Jesus was in this process. He was ministering up in the north in North Israel, and then he takes this long trip down to Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 19, right before this, Jesus enters into the city. The crowds are hailing him as the coming king. They realize he is the Messiah. He is the one who's going to come and save us. They're singing Hosanna, just like we sang. And then the first thing Jesus does is he goes into the temple. And it says that he actually, in John, it says he made a whip. Okay, He made a whip. He went into the temple, and he began whipping people. He began swinging his whip around. He began turning over the tables. It would be like somebody coming in here and kicking the instruments over and and smashing the, and not a band person who's performing, mind you, but somebody else who doesn't own the stuff, um, taking the instruments, crashing around. And uh, that's what Jesus is doing in the temple. And he's shouting, you guys have desecrated the temple. You are evil. You have turned this house of prayer into a den of thieves. And so this is what Jesus has just done. Now, if you were to do this in a store, if you were to do this in a bank, if you were to do this in an office place, as you began to do this, you'd hear something, right? You'd hear this, right? right. The, the security comes, right? The police, whoever's in charge, would come running up. That's exactly what happens here in our passage. The rulers, the leaders, the religious leaders come in response to what Jesus is doing, and they say, what in the world are you doing? Who do you think you are? Are you crazy? What? About, on what authority do you do these things? And so that's the question. That's the scene that Jesus is speaking into. And frankly, maybe you're here and you kind of wonder the same thing. Right? Maybe you think, well, what, what authority does Jesus have? Right? Who, who is he that he would make these sorts of outlandish and grandiose and magnanimous claims? I mean, in a lot of ways, this can be a legitimate question. Right? There are some people that honestly want to know and understand what does the authority of Jesus mean? Or why does he have authority? Even Christians ask, again, what does it mean if Jesus is in authority? What does it mean to say that Jesus is my Lord or my King? Right? We ask that question, too. And so when that question is asked legitimately, it deserves a, really, it deserves a legitimate answer. The problem is these leaders, they don't really want to know. Okay? These religious leaders are not looking for Jesus to answer their question um, with any sort of honesty these leaders are looking for Jesus to condemn himself. Okay? These leaders are threatened, and they know they're threatened. Because if Jesus is right, then they are wrong. Okay? Jesus, in the whole act even of, clean, of cleaning out the temple, is saying that the people who are in charge of the religion are wrong. And they're recognizing that. And so they want to figure out a way to get rid of Jesus. And so they ask him this question, not to find out where his authority actually comes from, but they want Jesus to claim that he's a king. They want Jesus to fess up and admit that he is a king. Because if he does that, they can turn him into the authorities. They can call Rome, and they can say, you know what, we've got a guy here who's gathering a following, and he's claiming to be a king. Because when that happens in Caesar's world... Caesar puts that king down. And so that's what they're aiming for. But what's interesting is that Jesus' response to them it it exposes their hearts. In verses five through seven, well, well, Jesus asks them the question. Let me ask you, he says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? Is it from God or men? And in verses five to seven, they don't want to answer Jesus' question because, again, they're not concerned about the truth. They're not concerned about what's right. All they want is to get rid of Jesus. They're concerned about their own power. And for them to answer Jesus' question would be to jeopardize their power so they won't answer it. They just want to get rid of him. And I think when we begin to think about the religious leaders, it begins to shine some light even into our own hearts and how we think, right? I mean, Christians fall into this trap sometimes. Do I really need Jesus to lead me in every area of my life? You know, maybe you have an area of life that you really don't want Jesus to speak into. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe it's an area of your life where, for whatever reason, you feel like you're entitled to have your own way, and Jesus should not bother you in that area. maybe you think, well, look, I give Jesus everything. I just want this for myself. Is that how you feel? I think asking the question who do you think you are to Jesus, gives Jesus an opportunity to respond back to us by saying, well, why do you want to know? Are you asking because you really want to know, or are you asking because you feel like your life is threatened by his authority? When it starts to threaten us, we tend to get defensive. And what's interesting is that either way, no matter how you are asking that question today, Jesus gives us an answer. Okay, he gives us an answer. Who does Jesus think he is? Well, so far, he's the one who gets to the heart. He, he, he forces us to ask ourselves, why do we want to know? And then he shows us where we stand in terms of his authority. Okay? So this question gets to our hearts. Secondly, this question produces conflict. It produces conflict. Jesus tells this parable, and a parable is just a story with a hidden truth. He tells a story to show what happens based on our ideas of who Jesus is. Okay, he's helping us understand what would happen to us. What are the consequences of our response to who Jesus is? And the story of the vineyard and the owner, it's not just a random setting that Jesus made up. Okay, Jesus wasn't going, all right, let's see, how can I give you an illustration of what this thing? I know, I know, a vineyard. That's not how it works. No, Jesus is bringing this right out of the Old Testament. Okay, Isaiah chapter 5. You can read the chapter on your own. Let me read you just verse 7. It says this. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the garden of his delight. Okay, and so what we see here, Isaiah helps us understand exactly what's going on here. God is the owner. The religious leaders are the tenants. The servants are the prophets. And then the son is Jesus. This story is telling us the history of Israel. Right up until the day of Jesus, the, the day he's speaking to them right then, this is the same history that Jesus has indicted the leaders for earlier. If you read Luke 13, just you know, seven chapters earlier, Jesus said this, "O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, who are sent to you, How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing." Right? It's the same story, just with a little bit of different imagery. The point is that Israel as a nation is God's special love. That God loves his people. He wants the best for them. He wants a relationship with them. And so he's planted them. And he's nurtured and cared for them. He's rescued Israel from danger time and time again, from famine, from disease. And then he appointed leaders to help <laughs> him to encourage them to be in relationship with him. The leaders were designed to be, uh, they were designed to cultivate people's relationship with God. They were designed to present people to God, to communicate with people who God is. That was what they were supposed to do. But the tragedy is that over and over again throughout their history, Israel's leaders have done the exact opposite. They've done the exact opposite. They've oppressed the people. They've made themselves rich. They've made themselves powerful by fleecing the people, by oppressing people. And so God has sent them again, over and over again. The history of Israel is this cycle. He sends them prophets, but they don't listen. The last prophet before Jesus was John the Baptist, and he had his head cut off for his work. And so now Jesus is God sending his son in hopes that the leaders will finally realize the error of their ways and they'll return to a relationship with God. And again, I think it doesn't take too much energy, if we're honest, to to realize that there's some of the tenants in us. Right? We may not be exactly like the tenants, but I think all of us. I mean, we just prayed and confessed it that we live in God's good world. We enjoy God's blessings. We enjoy the ways that he has built a life that is beautiful, that is thrilling, that that takes our breath away at times, that is, I mean, there's just, the, the world is full of so much goodness. There's so much in it that we enjoy, and yet we take things for granted, right? We take God for granted. When God calls on us to give him what he's due at harvest time, it's like we're offended that he even asks, And so, again, I want to ask, what has God asked of you that you won't give up? What is it in your life, in your heart, that that you just don't want to let go of? Jesus is telling us this story because, frankly, he wants us to be appalled. He wants us to be, like, not just upset, but he wants us to be fuming at this. Right? We read the story. Maybe you've read it a bunch of times before, but, I mean, do you catch this? Did, did, did you feel that way at all? Or is the story a little bit too short so it's hard because it's the Bible? You're not supposed to get that kind of emotional about the I don't know. Um, well, as I was thinking about this, I know some people who have rented out their homes or who have rental properties. Um, and, you know, if you don't, I don't, some of you may know this, some of you don't. California is the worst state in the world actually not the world, but it's it's a really bad state when it comes to the rights of owners over their property with renters. Okay? And I've heard the story of people that I care about where it has happened multiple times. They have tenants move in, they pay rent for two months, and then in that third month they stop. Okay, and at first they give excuses, oh you know what, things are just a little bit tight, don't worry we'll have money to you next week. And then next week comes and goes, and you know what? Okay, we're just about it. We're just getting the money in. We're going to get you a check. Don't worry. And then another week goes by, and then previously said, you know what? We'll just pay you at the first of the next month. We'll give you two months' rent. Okay, we'll have it then, and there's no problem. Well, that time comes around, and, it's, and they don't pay. Right? And so then another month sometimes goes where the manager's trying to, or the, the owner or the property manager is trying to work with the, with the renter, trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, trying to work with them. And so another month comes by, and then finally they say, okay, look, we just need to get, issue an eviction notice. Well, the eviction notice comes, and the tenants say, they, well, actually, they don't say anything. They just they stay in the house. And California is a state where you can't force somebody to leave unless you have a court order, so you actually have to go to court. Okay, so it takes another month to get a court date to be able to appear before a judge and have the judge issue a decree to have these people forcibly removed from your home. But the problem is that if you're the owner or the property manager, the paperwork that you have to fill out is unbelievable. It's crazy in its detail. And the reality is that if you don't fill out every single bit of the paperwork perfectly, then the case gets thrown out without the judge ever even looking at the merits. Of the case, And so you're sent back, and you have to read, and you don't find out if you did it perfectly until you show up, right? So you're waiting for this time, you show up, and then somehow you, know, you find out that the paperwork wasn't filled out correctly, so you're sent back to do the whole thing all over again. And it takes another month or so before you get, and meanwhile, the renter is living in the house. They're still there, and the owner is paying the mortgage on the property, right? The owner has to pay, but the owner is getting no rent right and the and the people living there they're just they're laughing because they've done this before and because they planned on doing this the whole time when they moved in and they had this whole thing worked out and so it takes 6 sometimes 12 months to actually get that whole process done where you can get a renter removed forcibly from a home and i've heard this story people i care about have told me the story and i think oh it makes me so mad. I think, gosh, can't you just show up? And aren't you bigger than them? Can't you grab them by the hand? You know? I mean, it, just, it irks me, right? They're just living there, and, and they don't care, and they know it, and they love what they're doing. And I think, oh, I wish I could kill you. I mean, that's what Jesus wants us to feel about these tenants. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. He wants you to know that this is not just a tame story. These are evil, wicked people who have been put in a place and they are sticking their middle finger up at God. That's what's going on. You know, it reminds me of, um, I mean, it, well, it reminds me of the passage in 1 Samuel 2 with the, 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 the Eli's sons, the, the hypocrisy and the wicked leadership that was going on then. It's the same thing going on here. Jesus wants us to hear the story and go, what? Wait, they did, huh? Three times? Wait, wait, wait. The sun? They they killed? Oh, are you kidding me? Ah! That's what Jesus wants you to feel like. I can't believe these people are doing this. And then while you're frustrated, you're supposed to start making connections. Right? You're caught up in the story. And then you think, wait a second. The Bible says that Israel is a vineyard and God planted her. And you know what? When Jesus told the story, the farmers, verse 14, discussed the matter among themselves. Well, wait a minute. That's exactly what the religious leaders just did in verse 5. You know, they, they consulted with themselves. That's the same root word, actually, in verses 5 and 14. Oh, it dawns on you. Jesus is talking about these leaders. He's talking about the leaders. He's exposing and condemning them. That's what's going on here. And so this sets off further dialogue, quote, dialogue, with the leaders. Verse 16 says, when the people heard this, but and this is one of those places where the Greek's a little bit ambiguous. It could also be translated um, that it's the leaders who were the ones who said what was said in verse 16. And it makes more sense then because they're the ones who wouldn't want this to happen. In verse 16, the leaders said, may this never be. They're saying, God forbid, you know, because the end of this is that the leaders, the tenants are in big trouble. And so they say, may it never be. And what's amazing here is that the leaders, they were appalled at the story, but they weren't appalled at the behavior of the tenants. They were appalled that they were being accused of being the tenants. Right? Everybody loves a good story until you find out, oh, wait, it's about me? I don't like that anymore. And then you go back and think, no, no, it doesn't really apply because, you know, and then our justification starts. And so Jesus wants us to know that God is angry, and he's not going to stand for this kind of leadership. He opposes it with every ounce of his being, he, and he's taking action. Verse 17, Jesus looks directly at the leaders, and then he quotes their own Bible to them. They say, oh, no way, it can never be. God forbid that that would happen. And Jesus says, look, you reject me, but God is choosing me to build, his, to build a foundation that will become a new, ultimately a new religion in a sense. I mean, it's a continuing, the fulfillment of, of Judaism. But, um, to, but, but Jesus says to reject me is then to fall under judgment. And so we see here that God is going to destroy the leaders and he's going to replace them. He's going to replace them. There's nothing that God hates more than hypocrisy. And so God is moving to replace these leaders. Jesus' followers are going to be the tenants. You know, it says in uh, in verse sixteen, He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The others are the twelve, the twelve disciples, and the, and the people who follow Jesus. And so what we have here, really, it's an exposure of who, it's an exposure of hearts, right? We find out, I think, even about people today. Right. There are some non-Christians who don't want to submit to Jesus' authority. They don't want to give back the, the honor, the, the, the praise, the thankfulness, the gratitude back to God that God is due. But I think it also exposes people in the church. It exposes Christians who claim to be in the love of God, who claim to be following God, and yet really don't want Jesus to reign over certain areas of their lives, or who live in a way that doesn't reflect the heartbeat of god and so this conflict erupts and we're going to see this conflict escalate in the ensuing chapters the leaders want to kill jesus they just don't want to get killed by the people as they kill jesus right the only reason they didn't grab hold of him and take him out to stone him then was because of the crowds jesus is in the temple the crowds are thronging to him they know that he's something special they know that he is speaking for god they know that he is the messiah And so if the the leaders knew, that's what they said, if we say, verse 6, if we say that this was from men, all the people will stone us. And so this is sort of the conflict. This is the drama that's unfolding. And you're going to watch. We're going to see what happens in the coming weeks, how this thing escalates. And so who is Jesus? Well, he's not only the one who gets to our hearts, but he's also the one who has authority to judge those who reject him. He has the authority to judge those who, who reject him. So the question gets to the heart. The question produces conflict. And now third, the question also produces community. It produces community. Here's some things that just amaze me about this story. The son comes with hope in the parable, right? The father is still hoping. He, the, the owner sends his son in the hopes that the tenants will respect him. Isn't that odd he's still hoping for a relationship with these tenants he doesn't send the son to destroy the tenants he sends the son to collect from the tenants in the hopes that a relationship can be restored and so even as jesus is announcing judgment on the people who reject him he's also giving them another opportunity to return to him He's giving them another chance at a relationship with him. He's inviting them to come clean, to confess their intentions and their motivations, and to have integrity. That's his invitation. It's amazing because what we see here is that there's a way to escape judgment, even for the people, even for the religious leaders. There's a way for them. There's a way for us. Because there's a step that's been left out right there's a step that's missing in the parable there's a step between the killing of the son and the judgment of the father okay and that step is the forgiveness that's offered that step actually is <laughs> the the one who the son who's murdered Turns around and says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Do you see that? In the parable, the murder of the son brings judgment, but Jesus transcends even his own parable. Okay, I want you to understand this. In the life of Jesus, the murder of the son brings forgiveness, it brings forgiveness. It's glorious. I mean, do you see that? (laughs) If Jesus is willing to forgive them, the tenants, right? The renters. I had to come to grips with that. I had to put this gospel story in my frustration about these renters and think, well, that's like saying, okay, look, if you're really sorry and you're confessing that you've sinned against me after six months of fleecing me, and living in my home for six months for free and not paying me back, it's almost like saying, All right, I'll let you live here again. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, but what's amazing is that this is the grace of God. This is the undying, unending, amazingly inexhaustible love that God has. This is the chance after chance after chance after chance after chance, no matter how many times you blow it. Because it's not just for them, it's for us. If Jesus is willing to forgive the tenants for doing something so pointedly evil, he's willing to forgive us too. I mean, no matter what the baggage is, no matter how many times, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are, Christian or not, Jesus continues to say, that my love is greater than your sin, that my grace, as high a mountain of sin as you pile up, my grace floods down and covers over even the tops of the mountains. And what's amazing is that this grace, it's this Jesus. I mean, who is Jesus? Who does Jesus think he is? Well, he's somebody that really can get to the heart of where we stand with him. Right? He's someone that produces conflict because he calls people on their stuff and calls them to the floor if they need to be, if they need to be um, convicted or exposed. But then what we also see is you say, Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus says, look, I have come that you might have life. If you're angry with me, if you're bitter with me, if you're frustrated with me, if you've been burned by the church even, if you've been burned by people that say they follow me, I want you to know that I am here so that you can know real happiness, real joy, real life. I want to give you a purpose for living. I want to fill you with a relationship with God that will literally make everything better. And that's the Jesus that creates community. That's the Jesus that creates community. Because as Jesus makes these claims, as we think about Jesus interacting in this way, as we think about the fact that the Son offers forgiveness before the Father brings judgment, as we think about these things, some of you here right now are thinking, you know what, I believe this. Some of you for the first time are saying, I believe this. And some of you have believed this for years. But you think, I believe this. I believe that Jesus really did offer this kind of forgiveness even to his enemies. And as you believe this about Jesus, as you believe in Jesus, this love, this grace, it fills your heart. You who maybe feel empty are filled up to the fullness of Jesus' love. The Bible says that the love of God is poured out to overflowing in our hearts through Jesus who loved us. And when that happens to you, it creates a community. The church, if you strip away all the, 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 the bad tradition, the hypocrisy, if you strip away all the stuff that, well, all the humanness of the church maybe would be a good way to say it. I mean, we have to be gracious to each other too, right? So, you know, we need to recognize that none of us, it's not that you become a Christian, everything's perfect. So the church is filled with needs for grace and needs for love and forgiveness. But the church in its essence, is the community of people who have experienced the grace and love of Jesus and are sharing it with others. And when you've experienced that, it creates a community with everybody else who's experienced it. Um, I came across a story written by an atheist um, on December 27th of of last year. In the title of the, of the article, it's just an article actually, it says this. It says, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. Okay, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. And he says that he was traveling in Malawi, and he's been embarrassed by his growing belief that there is no God by what he's seen. He said this, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. This is an atheist. He says, I used to avoid this truth by applauding the practical work of the mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation's part of the package. But Christians black and white working in Africa do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say that the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine, But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to his flock. And this is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, this is the mission, right? This is what we're supposed to be. We are supposed to be the community of people that brings the love, the grace, and the healing power of Jesus into San Diego. This is our call. Jesus, and what's amazing here is that, that Jesus is right now in this passage, Jesus is, is, is enacting, he's, he's escalating the conflict with the religious leaders, he's calling them to the floor, and part of what he's doing, though, is he's training his people, he's training his followers, because he's about to hand the baton to them, Okay? In less than four days, Jesus is going to be crucified, right? This is Monday, Tuesday of that week. Friday, he's crucified. Sunday, he rises from the dead. Jesus knows that he's going to be handing the baton, handing his mission to his followers. And he needs them to see and appreciate and understand the love and the grace. He needs them to bond together in a community that will help support them. And frankly, that's what we need because his followers have handed the baton to you. We now are the living embodiment of this community. We are the people that are supposed to be able to support each other. You know, and and maybe we've got religious persecution like Jesus had, and certainly the community helps with that but all kinds of things, right? I mean, all kinds of problems, financial problems, marital problems, health problems, friendship problems, loneliness problems, relationship problems. I mean, all these things, the community of faith, the church is built by God to be a support for us to live as a family. I mean, that's our call. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And what's amazing is that when we believe in him, Again, it's the commitment to him, this one in whom is all love and all grace and all forgiveness. When we connect to him by believing in him, it pours into us and we share it with each other. So he is the source (laughs) of all that we need. And so in the midst of the conflicts, we have community. And that community supports us with the love of Jesus himself. Are you a part of that? Are you experiencing that community right now? Are you doing your part to provide that community for others? I mean, this is our call. This is our call as we watch Jesus ministering to disciples over these next few chapters in the midst of all this conflict. We need to ask ourselves how are we helping the folks around us in the church and outside? You can do it with the power of the one who did it first. Let's pray. Father, we see Jesus, we see him offering forgiveness even to those who rejected him. We see his life interposing that, that missing step from the parable that between the murder of the son and the forgiveness or the, and the judgment of the father, that, that son comes back from the dead and offers forgiveness. And we're just, we're, we're, we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed, God, and we want to follow Jesus. We love this Jesus. Thank you, God, that he has poured out that love and forgiveness on us. Help us, God, to draw nearer to him. Help us to give you more control over our lives. Help us to submit more to your authority and to live in this powerfully transforming community so that we can share that with others and transform our city. We pray this for your sake in Jesus' name. Amen.